0: This is WPRB Princeton, community-supported, independent radio. And now at five o'clock, it's news and culture. I'm your host, Adam Sanders. Today is April 8th, 2022, and news and culture is presenting our April Fool's Day special, an episode on shenanigans. You might be thinking, well, April Fool's Day was a week ago, Adam. That it is. Uh, This episode was supposed to air one week ago, but in the biggest shenanigan of all, the Fates decided to infect multiple members of our staff with COVID-19 only days before the show. Hilarious. But that's the rub with the shenanigan, isn't it? For it to be funny, it has to be risky. It has to make a jump over the gap of irrelevance. No one has ever made a good prank without riling somebody up first. The line between humorous shenanigan and infuriating act of insubordination is quite thin, and it's all about whether or not the people around you find space to laugh. I tried to play a shenanigan on some members of the News & Culture staff today. As many of you know, WPRB is entirely operated by students at Princeton University, and so many of our reporters here at News & Culture have complex relationships with a massive student-run newspaper on campus, the Daily Princetonian. In an attempt at comedy, I pretended the Princetonian had presented News & Culture with a promising offer. My inability to perform a shenanigan became quickly apparent when reporters began flooding me with ethical questions. Hey, Tommy, I wanna to tell you WPRB News got an interesting opportunity. What's that? Um, the prince has offered to buy us out. Oh. Like, give us like a big room and like uh, you know, fancy titles. What do you think?
1: What do I think?
0: I don't know. I mean, do you feel like creatively compromised by that? Like they would try to lead you in a certain direction? Alan, I was I just told uh Tommy this, but The Prince has offered to, like, buy out our whole team. What does that mean? Like, they want all of our talent. I kind of
2: like the idea of being part of independent radio.
0: I did seem to convince our reporter, Hannah, who expressed bewilderment that the Prince even had a podcast team. Um,
3: That is a big offer. Wait, they have a podcast?
0: See, that's what I thought, too. Yeah, I don't think anybody listens to them. Is that why they want us? I guess so, I guess so. Reporter Charlie Nurburger seemed quite upset.
3: Wait,
4: what? You're lying.
0: No, I'm serious.
4: That's so funny. Wait, what?
0: Yeah, and no so, like
4: no way. Like no way, right?
0: I mean, I don't know. What do you think? Alan Alan was like seemed on board.
5: Oh, I think like no way. Like, I don't know. Like, I probably wouldn't work with the Prince Cypher. Like.
0: I wasn't sure what to expect calling my personal boss Iris, the station manager. <laughs> I don't know about buying us out if they want to, I don't know, if they want to promote your segments on
4: their show, they're allowed to.
0: Eventually, I had to break the news.
4: This was all one big shenanigan. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. You got me, you got me. <laughs> I hate you so much right now.
0: Clearly not being funny enough. This is meant to be part for the shenanigans episode. <laughs> Um, but clearly, I'm not funny enough to be a real prankster. Maybe I should stick to podcasting. Stick around, we've got a great show for you guys today. Shenanigans abounding, order subverted, and tomfoolery everywhere you look. It's April Fool's Day a late. The only way we do it here at News & Culture.
6: WPRB wants you to know about the Attic Youth Center. The Attic Youth Center is Philadelphia's only organization exclusively dedicated to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning LGBTQ youth, and has served over 10,000 individuals in nearly 30 years of existence. Their mission is to create opportunities for youth to develop into healthy, independent, civic-minded adults within a safe, supportive community, and to promote the acceptance of LGBTQ youth in society. And they need your help. To find out how you can support their amazing work or get involved, please visit AtticYouthCenter.org. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio.
0: First up, reporters Raina Kulabali and Izzy Jacobson learn more about pranking culture at summer camps and the way shenanigans can permeate through the camper's life.
7: Camp is a quintessential part of an American childhood. It is marked by mosquito bites, sunburns, s'mores, and, of course, pranks.
8: Today, WPRB sits down with... I am Gretchen Mills, she, her. ...to discuss the nuances of life at camp.
9: I went to camp in Vermont from ages 9 through 17. Uh, it's a very small camp, and everyone there is really close-knit. And there's just there are a lot of hijinks that go on there.
7: Going to camp was like stepping through a wormhole, an opportunity to live a life governed by chaotic fun. Central to that fun was pranking.
8: Gretchen grew up watching older campers prank their way through the summer. Shenanigans were somewhat of a rite of passage.
9: One of the cabins took a canoe from like the canoeing racks and put it in the boys' cabin, completely filled it with water, sat in it with life jackets and took a picture and posted it all over the dining hall. Another, I think it was a girl's cabin put, they put someone's bed on the high dive. Like that was a very common one. Beds were always on the high dive or on the roof of the dining hall. Like literally like every other week someone's bed would be on the high dive.
8: Finally, it was Gretchen's turn at some of the fun. When I was 15, it was my last year at camp.
9: I was in the oldest girl's cabin and then there was an oldest boys cabin and so we decided we were going to do a prank war and for one of our pranks they had a taxidermy deer head in their cabin that they'd had like the most prominent counselor sign and also when kendall schmidt of big time rush came to visit our camp they got him to sign the deer head um and we stole it and took pictures of ourselves all over camp with it stuck it in our cabin took pictures of ourselves in our cabin with it, signed it, and then hung all the pictures of us with the deer head up in their cabin.
7: Of course, the boys couldn't just stand by and watch. No prank war is complete without revenge.
9: They retaliated that by taking all of our bunk beds and putting them out on the front lawn and all our trunks. So our cabin was completely empty and it started to rain.
7: Despite their sopping wet clothes, both sides were happy to participate in the prank war. Pranking became a common language for the campers. It was a way to say the unsaid.
9: It was very much like a last year thing because it was like flirty,
7: like to prank
9: each other. I mean, we were all pretty young. We didn't actually know how to talk to each other. But like, it was very cool that we were like interacting with the boys and we'd like tease them about like moving their stuff and the deer head and it was it was flirting but there was no actual
8: flirting going on. As Gretchen gained the status of counselor in training she came to realize that campers weren't the only ones participating in mischief. Counselors acted as if trickery was part of their job description.
9: A lot of being on staff kind of was focused around pranking the campers like I mean we say gaslighting it wasn't that extreme and people just drop lies. Like, I was on a boat once, and someone, a camper asked me, and was like, oh, have you ever wakeboarded? And I was like, yeah, I did it once. And the counselor next to me was like, yeah, she's a national champion. And, like, we just played along with that. Like, it was, it became more about, like, tricking campers. And it was really, really funny.
7: <laughs> Often, though, the pranking went too far. Things took a turn for the worse.
9: Once on Halloween, like, they always planned something for Halloween. Um, and this was when I was younger. I was probably 10 or 11. They took us in white vans to a graveyard for this whole show, (laughs) but they put black paper over the van windows, uh, and one of them got pulled over because it's a white van with a bunch of kids inside with black paper on the windows. But it wasn't just that. They set, like, a really big fire once. Like, they they built a model of this tower that's in the middle of the camp and burned it. I, I don't know how legal that was.
8: Yeah, there are not a lot of rules,
9: not a lot of boundaries,
8: very chaotic. Sometimes the chaos can be too much.
9: I've come to realize that like, I can't keep up with that lifestyle anymore. You don't prioritize your health, I guess. And when I was nine, that was fine. I didn't shower for a week. I was fine, but I can't really sustain that now. And there's just a lot of partying and chaos and you're kind of always going and really not getting a lot of sleep. And it's super fun because everyone's close. It almost borders on cult-like because people are just so close and there's all these traditions and memories. Um, But it can definitely be a lot. There's two sides to it. In the end, camp
7: isn't real life and Gretchen knows this.
9: It was such a utopia and it's just like you're living with a bunch of kids for four weeks. So coming out of that was really, really hard every summer because, I mean, obviously home is not gonna be as fun. School is not gonna be as fun as just running around all summer. I always went through like a crash three weeks after. I was like, I'm not talking to any of my friends. We're moving, like, I'm not going back to school. Camp is life. And I get over it eventually, but like, that was the hard part. It wouldn't be special if you went all the time.
8: When all is said and done, camp produces cherished memories and strong bonds for young kids. These things mean much more than silly, sometimes dangerous pranks. I guess camp was my first,
9: like, really long-lasting friendships. I moved around a lot as a kid and a teenager, and so I had these friends with me all the time, and that was really special. I don't think I've ever pranked someone in life. Even though we weren't all super close in our cabin, we kind of had our groups. Like, we'd all get together and do that together. It is a really good community, even if it
8: sometimes is a little too much.
7: For WPRB... This has been Izzy Jacobson
8: and Raina Kulibale.
6: WPRB wants you to know, don't let your waste trash New Jersey's waters. If you leave it on the ground, chances are the rain will wash it into our streams, lakes, and the ocean. By following a few simple rules, you can help make the water you drink, swim, and fish in cleaner. Don't dump anything into storm drains. The rain carries litter and other waste through the storm drains and into our waterways, so don't let her. Follow directions for applying pesticides and fertilizers. Properly dispose of household hazardous waste such as oil, bleach, and ammonia. And always pick up after your pet. Help protect the environment and our natural resources. Clean water. It's up to you, New Jersey. Sponsored by the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, the New Jersey Broadcasters Association, the Montgomery Township Green Team, and this station. For more information, log on to www.cleanwaternj.org. Again, go to cleanwaternj.org for more information. This has been a public service announcement from WPRB Princeton, community-supported independent radio.
0: Next, reporters Alan Plotz and Hannah Lee talked to the Princeton Blockchain Society about a recent addition to the culture of shenanigans on the internet, the advent of trolling, and what it can mean for cryptocurrency.
4: Never ask a crypto bro to explain crypto to you, because they
10: will just throw in every single vocabulary word on the planet.
11: This week on WPRB, we did just that.
10: We embark on a journey to investigate the world of cryptocurrency, blockchain, and non-fungible tokens, or NFTs, an epicenter of internet shenanigans like Dogecoin and digital toilet paper NFTs. For WPRB News and Culture, this is Hannah Lee and Alan Plotz. We went to a Princeton Blockchain Society workshop to check it out.
5: The more you read into crypto, like a lot of it was reading online posts or just like online white papers. But when people discuss it like on Reddit or something, you might see these sort of terms pop up. Like HODL, in this case, is basically like, you, you want to hold on to crypto long term, you really believe in it. Chilling is you're like scamming someone. There's a term called whale, which is basically people that have a large ownership in a network.
10: We sat down with co-presidents of Princeton Blockchain Society, both Fawn and Michelle, to learn more.
3: Essentially, blockchain is an innovative database technology that is at the heart of nearly all the cryptocurrencies that we see today, like ETH or Bitcoin. So, by distributing the identical copies of databases across the entire network, the blockchain tech can make it very difficult to hack, can make a single individual or an individual organization very difficult to hack or cheat the system. So, at core, the blockchain is a distributed digital ledger that can store essentially data of any kind. So a blockchain can record information about cryptocurrency transactions, about NFT ownerships, and about DeFi, the smart contracts. Any conventional database can store this sort of information. Blockchain is unique in the sense that it's totally decentralized.
11: So essentially, it's a new technology with the potential to transform the way capital, or money, moves through the world. This would mean, for example,
4: instead of having in banks, right, instead of having a Bank of America like, holding your money, but instead you just have, have decentralized wallets where you can store uh, your like Ethereum, Bitcoin, whatever, right, so you store your cryptocurrency. So, so that's actually your money. That's, that's your wallet, and you don't need anybody else to
10: hold it.
3: A very important part of the blockchain technology is called consensus. So even the blockchain technology, in order, for example, for something to be added to the block, it required the consensus from 51% of the computers that are, say, doing the mining or in the network. So even from a technical perspective, the consensus thing is important in blockchain. It is
11: this democratization and freedom, according to Michelle and Buffon, that creates a culture
3: revolving around memes. I think memes comes from the worship or the pursuit of a community consensus.
2: If we
4: fundamentally change the way we're thinking about what the organization should look like, I mean, the current way of thinking is that, okay, we should have a top down organization. That's right? happening in many, many places, right? Even in national scales, it's not possible to have a sort of direct democracy. We have a representative democracy in the sense of a participatory democracy. But instead, we're trying to realize participatory democracy on a large scale. And, and that's enabled by technology. There are so many social experiments and memes are part of this uh, giant social movements that we're all part of, I guess,
10: uh,
5: in, uh,
10: in this decade. Even other members of the Princeton Blockchain Society agree. This is Joe Chen, who ran a workshop on cryptocurrency.
5: There's like a desire to not be so institutionalized. They're also more anonymous. So people tend to like not have their words attached to their identity as much. So that kind of leads to a lot more just like people being casual with what they say and having fun with it.
11: However, the freedom inherent in blockchain technology and culture comes with its own risks.
4: This guy, I think this is just like a bot or something, sent me a private message saying it got wireless. And I went to the website. And so they are the website where I can mint an NFT. I was like, this website looks exactly the same as the official website, where it has all the features. It has the right Twitter account. It has the right OpenSea account. It everything right. He even has the team founder's name right. I was like, okay, this is terrific, right? And they use the trick, right? They're like, 30 minutes, you have thir- you have t- 10 minutes left. And if you don't mint right now, it's gonna expire. You won't have the chance. And I was like, holy shit. I was like, I have to do this. I was like, I missed out so much. And I just like, I, I didn't read really second thought. Usually the way to prevent this kind of scamming is that you click the name of the website to see if you can go back to the main page. But if you can't, if you can't, it's definitely a scammer website. But I didn't click it. I was like, 10 minutes, I don't have time for this. I just need to mint it and I uh, approve the transaction on MetaMask, which is a decentralized wallet. Approach transaction. I, I sent send the scammer five hundred dollars. I was like, "Where is my NFT?" I dm him, and after ten minutes, he uh, he didn't reply. And then I was like, second thinking this, I was like, maybe he forgot. But let's. But then I go back to the website, and then, and I found the website was blocked. The, the website was like was like just after that. I was, like I I think the website was like canceled or something.
10: And I know that's a scam. People have had to come up with their own strategies to avoid being scammed.
5: I don't make that many transactions. I, I've held on to coins for a long time. Because of that, I have just less of a chance of being scammed.
11: New member, Trevon, has been particularly mindful about avoiding scams.
5: I feel like the things that I've bought
4: so far have been pretty official and through official means, like pretty official cryptocurrency exchanges. So honestly, I have not been scammed because I've honestly, I'm concerned about that also. So. I've never bought an MFT yet and like I honestly don't plan to for maybe just a little bit just until I find something that's actually pretty compelling to me.
3: There are definitely hackers and scammers who are making use of the huge knowledge gap and the huge information gap that has been generated in this space to trick people into approving transactions online that they don't really quite understand and also hacking into people's accounts. So I guess the development of the NFT market space and crypto trading, we're still at a very early stage and the market is very much unregulated.
10: It appears blockchain culture can be a hotbed for scams and shenanigans. Joe explains more about how that culture of freedom can lead to some funny situations.
5: There's definitely a lot of, like, people who are uh, on Reddit just pumping up currencies. Like Dogecoin, for instance, oftentimes when Elon Musk says something, like the price kind of listens to him. I remember back in the day when Elon Musk was going to SNL, Dogecoin went up a lot.
11: Will blockchain technology really revolutionize the world as we know it? Only time will tell. Until then, we at WPRB... We'll be eagerly waiting to hear more stories of scams and shenanigans.
0: WPRB wants to thank all of its monthly sustaining members who help keep the station on the air. By giving a donation each and every month, these sustaining members help keep the lights on, allow the station to invest in new projects, and push WPRB to improve its programming each and every day. From all of us here at New Jersey's only radio station, thank you. If you would like to become a sustaining member of WPRB, visit WPRB.com slash donate to make a contribution towards keeping community-supported independent radio on the air. Finally, reporters Tommy Goulding and Henry Moses delve into the origin of the shenanigan itself and just how it could relate to a key piece of lore here on the Princeton University
1: campus. The year was 1855. It was a heady time in the United States, especially on the western frontier. California, our nation's sunny centerpiece, was made a state in 1850, coinciding with the famous gold rush. Thousands of young men, mostly penniless, some desperate, converged on the newly American territory. They were seeking adventure, purpose, sure, but mostly seeking their fortune makeshift homes, saloons, stores, they were quickly built to accommodate the influx of dreamers and believers. San Francisco doubled and tripled overnight with fraudsters and hucksters, old hands and young dumb kids, longtime miners and those eager to learn. All came for the same promise of instant and permanent wealth. And so, into this mix of hope and desperation, into this early chapter in the American gospel of wealth and get-rich-quick promises, this new word starts getting thrown around. You see, in San Francisco, you don't just get this huge influx of Americans from the East. You're also seeing the development of a distinctive culture in this rapidly growing West Coast city. A bunch of men come from afar to do manual labor, without much structure. It easily leads to a lot of drinking and gambling. There's crime, yes, thieving, murdering, but also crime of a more subtle sort. With so much hope, so much desperation in the air, it's a wonderful time to be a con man or any criminal using deception or underhanded tricks to get by. And so the San Francisco press, it's also largely a product of the gold rush, starts using this new word in its stories to describe this atmosphere of criminal or verging on criminal deception and rowdiness. It shows up in Town Talk, a San Francisco paper, in 1855, and in papers in Sacramento in the next few years. By 1862, Mark Twain was dropping it into his articles, and in 1877 it entered Bartlett's Dictionary of Americanisms. The word? Shenanigans. No one's quite sure where this word came from. It definitely first came into print in the 1850s in San Francisco, But etymologists have a number of guesses from where it might have sprung up. California was a recently acquired Mexican territory, so the Spanish language has been one place scholars have looked. Charanada in Spanish means a cheap trick, so this could be the word's origin. Another huge group in the gold rush, though, were the Irish. In the decade after the potato famine, many Irish immigrant families came out to the west coast to seek fortune and stability. With them, some brought knowledge of the Irish language, including the word shanak, fox. For the Irish, the phrase to play the fox then is to engage in shenanigans.
2: The year is 2022, a cloud of confusion, a mix of hope and despair hangs over the United States. And this is no less true on our beautiful campus. What just happened? What's going to happen? We're forced to ask large looming questions on a daily basis. Walking from class to class, party to party, we're unknowingly spellbound by this air of confusion. We're wading through the fog and we're searching, searching for answers, searching for hope, searching for meaning and searching for foxes. We're not the only inhabitants of this slice of New Jersey. No, we're intruding. Everybody knows someone who has seen the campus fox or foxes There are multiple. No, there's just one. No, there's a whole family of them. How many are there? Are they even real? Do foxes even exist? Is it all a delusion? Sometimes you stumble upon one. The first and only time I saw a fox on campus was in the first week of school. It was dusk, getting darker by the second. I had just finished my first ever week of classes here and I was confused. Am I going to manage all of the work? Do my professors hate me? Both really very real questions but also there was hope. My classes were cool. I was getting closer with some friends. I felt very human, dropped in this situation and struggling, but surviving. The struggle, the searching around in the dark, sticking my hands out, feeling around, making sense of the new world around me was rewarding. And I was on the phone, walking around outside to have some space and time to myself. And I was telling my confidant on the line about my struggles, my successes. And then it appeared. In the corner of my eye at first, and then right in front of me. Was it real? Are you real, I wanted to yell. I wanted to talk to him. Maybe he had something to tell me. Yes, it was a he. Yes, I could tell. Hey, man. Hey, pal. What do you have to tell me? Is it all going to be okay? Are you a sign? What are you? I slept poorly that night. Everything is a sign, and so is the fox. I knew it was, but I didn't know what it meant. I couldn't read its syntax. This fox at this place in front of me towards the end of my first week of college, what did it mean? Months have passed now and I haven't seen him since. I'm still trying to learn, to learn what he meant, but it's hard. Other people have seen the fox, the foxes, whatever.
1: This week at News and Culture, we're talking about shenanigans. Shenanigans. You might define it as a particularly foxy kind of mischief. Where better to look, then, than Princeton's own campus fox? To talk about all of this mystery and wonder surrounding the fox, Henry sat down with Jacob Santelli. Jacob's a student here at Princeton. He saw the fox late at night, as many students do, scurrying in front of him on the path. It was a striking, strange experience. It
0: was actually a a pretty magical experience. Should I talk more about that? Yeah. Well, I think that as Princeton students... So much of our lives are are pre-planned, and we go about our days sort of in this haze of construction. But seeing an animal that would normally be seen in the wild or in a book about the wilds running through our very pre-planned campus uh, injects an element of magic or chaos into our days.
1: Next, Henry sat down with John. John's a somewhat eccentric partisan of the campus fox.
5: Made me
12: feel all warm. You know, I've, I, was, I read The Prince by a foxy man, Niccolo Machiavelli, and it talks about power dynamics. And one thing about When I saw the fox, I was sipping on my milkshake right outside the bar, bar. and it ran, it ran hard right in front of me. So, the thing about the fox is, it's it's elusive, and its complement is the lion, and I'd like to think of milkshakes as lion manes, all frosty and milky and just, mm, you want to get in there, you know? Anyways, the Wawa is not a very fun place,
1: unless you see the fox. Will Hartman is a campus poet. He has many muses, but one of them is our very own foxy friend. He joins News & Culture to share some of his work.
12: Oh, and the fox. Slink is the word always used, the one colloquialized, but it deserves more dignity than that. I saw it framed through the crux of a tree, through the tangled oaken silhouette, and there stood the fox framed against the windows of the far-off manor, and only just for a moment. It was only still for a moment, and then it had moved off, but for that moment it was briefly mine, one, though it had never even
2: looked my way. Ah, a lovely reading. The fox can inspire art, moments of reflection, and deep dives into etymology. Until the next sighting, news and culture encourages you to keep the fox in your thoughts.
0: That's our show. News and Culture is produced at the WPRB Studios here in picture-perfect Princeton, New Jersey. I'm your host and the show's director, Adam Sanders. Tonight's show was reported, recorded, and produced by Raina Kulabali, Izzy Jacobson, Alan Plotz, Hannah Lee, Tommy Goulding, Henry Moses, Anna Salvatore, and yours truly, Adam Sanders. Our art and social media director is Isa Escamilla. Our director emeritus and technical advisor is Oliver Wayne. The theme music for our show is Montanita by Ratatat. News and Culture is produced in Princeton, New Jersey by WPRB Princeton. Community-supported, independent radio. Take care and enjoy your evening.